Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast. Every week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about topics within the world of special needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. It's a really good way to get the same consistent message to both the parents and schools. In this episode, one of our regular guests, Finton O'Regan, returns. And for those who don't know Finton, he's been a head teacher, lecturer for Leicester University and now works as a training consultant for schools and school support systems. In this episode, we're discussing what makes a great teacher of SEA. But before we get started, have you heard of the Virtual Send Conference? This is a conference us here at B Squared started running back in 2009 that makes CPD around SEND more affordable, easier to access, and allows you to deliver CPD to the whole school around SEND, not just the same. Conference runs every year over the internet. You can watch the videos whenever you need as they are available on demand. For more information, visit www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing what makes a great teacher of SEN. My guest is Finton O'Regan. Finton is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police, and foster carers. And before he was doing this, he has worked with a number of organizations, including NASEN, Institute of Education, Leicester University, and the UK ADHD Network, and the European ADHD Alliance. And before all of this, probably in another lifetime, he was a head teacher of a specialist school for students with ADHD, ASD, and ODD. Welcome to the show, Finton. Thank you, Dale, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, you are welcome. The code of practice says every teacher is a teacher of SEN, but what makes a great teacher of SEN? Well, I think what would really help is um, as that philosophy was embedded in every single school, and uh, it was it, it was. Uh, it was embedded by every single head teacher in order to generate that that approach. And that's the thing. That's the long-term thinking, isn't it? I think most people go into teaching, most people go into teaching, particularly in secondary, not so much in primary, but teaching a subject to people. Well, I think you start off by saying what makes a great, you know, teacher of SEN is is basically really thinking fundamentally about people and what the people need. I think if I was to say there was three key issues, qualifications in particular, you know, SEN areas is, is, is important, but it's not vital. I think your number one thing is that you are thinking of a person, you know, who needs with learning as opposed to learning a person. So I think that's number one. You've got to think of the child first or the, or the young person first in terms of what they need, in terms of how they can access the curriculum and also issues of you know, socialization. I think, I think number two is, is if you are um, that, that sort of teacher who really is promoting that kind of philosophy, that you, you don't get too evangelical about it to colleagues who don't quite sort of agree with everything you are saying. You, you've got to be a little bit careful about, you know, it's important to share, but, you know, you just need to be a little bit careful about be, being too overt about something because I think what you're trying to do is encourage people to, to join in and you, you don't want to be seen as just annoying people and 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 that and I think the third thing if you really want to stay and and carry on doing the work 
that you're doing, you really do need to look after yourself in, in so much as you need to take care of your own patient's points. You need to also understand that you, you're not a machine and you will need to rest. You will need to recharge in order to carry on doing it again. And I think that can sometimes be very difficult because sometimes there's a, a tendency to almost care too much and to want to achieve everything on behalf of the child or the children in your class. And I think therein is also something in order to maintain and, and do what you're doing and carry on what you're doing for this year and the next year and the year after. It's important not to get too close to a particular child or particular set of children because to a certain extent, although we're really trying to help support them and change their lives and give them all the benefits and of your experience and expertise, in order to carry on doing that, you've got to be able to look after yourself to do that year after year end. So that's the real thing. So I'd say the last one is, is really looking after you and, and, you know, without trying to sound negative on this, you, you just need to keep your objective clear about what it is you are trying to achieve, not just on behalf of one child or one family, as vital as important as that is, but on behalf of all the families that you're working with, not just this year, but in the years to come. I think that, that looking after yourself is really important. People, People think maybe think they're invincible, but they don't really think long term. They talk about I need to get to I need to do this. And they'll use a the phrase, I'm the only one. They need me. You're right. We do need you. You are the only one. But if you're not looking after yourself, maybe I'm gonna say take short breaks, then you will end up having an enforced longer break you have no choice in taking which will take longer to recover from. And then the thing you didn't want to do was let people down is you kind of, at that point, it's a bigger. So it's, it's, it's monitoring yourself and understanding when actually I'm starting to go downhill, I need to take a break. And, and I know someone who recently had to do that. But when they went back into school, someone asked them what went wrong. And they went, oh, sure. And the next person, well, I had that and I didn't have to take any time off. There's a certain bravado of, I don't have to take time off. I can cope with this, which I don't agree with. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay, so let me give you an analogy or something to compare this with. When I was trained to be a, uh, and I was a trained science and PE teacher and I came into SEN a bit later than, than, you know, I didn't start off in that area. I started off as being a, as a, a a traditional teacher. And I always remember when on a course, physical education course, and it was talking about um, sports people and injuries. And they were saying that the reason why they last sports injuries affect sportsmen, not just because of the, the games they play, but they don't get them seen early enough and they go back too soon. And that's essentially what you're saying here. If you want to remain a successful sports person, you've got to take care of your body. You've got to take care of your mind in order to carry on achieving that performance yep. and so and it's very similar in this area and, it, and it's very hard sometimes not to get like i said before i was saying don't get too close but it's very hard not to get close with families who are that much more who do need support who really do need understanding they really do need strategies they need your time they need your care they need your expertise but in the end of the day you've got to we go back to that same if you to, to continue to, to to do what you're doing for you know for for numbers not just one or two pupils over a period of time and families, you've really got to observe those, those kinds of situations. Definitely. And your first point there, I had to focus on that well-being because it's a really important thing. I'm seeing a lot of people struggling, but your first point 
was about qualifications. And my mum, who was a teacher, and she'd see these PGCEs come in, you can just take your degree and become a teacher within a year. My mum just moaned about it constantly. They're bringing the wrong people in. We don't need people with qualifications. We need people who teach. We need to go and find out people who can teach. They don't need qualifications. We want the people who have that. And she would say that some of the best teachers in her school were some of the TAs. Well, I, I will I will give you a, an example of of that. There's a couple of things I'd like to say on that. I mean, qualifications are are, are important because it gives you it gives you sort of an understanding. Maybe a situ, you know maybe some answers that you would possibly get, you know, without a lot of time and experience in working with individuals yep. and 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 things. But so it, it does give you some direction. It gives you some clarity. It gives you some technical skills that you can translate in terms of supporting people with you know, who have reading difficulties and dyslexia and, and supporting people who have, have, you know, features of awesome. You, you, there's some, there's some situations and, and ideas that you can implement on behalf of people who have that, that you possibly wouldn't know unless you had some training and particular courses in that. But the, the thing that I would say is that, uh, I as a head teacher of a specialist school and after a period of time when I became more equipped, if you like, and had more knowledge and I had more experience in this area, I was then in charge of a school for SEN. And then I was having to recruit staff for, you know, for, for classes at different ages in order to maintain that. And I would always say as a, as a head teacher, now obviously to have the interview, there's got to be some degree of screening of the people that are coming in prior to the meeting. But what I learned was I would be able to tell within the first three or four minutes, really, whether or not I was going to hire someone. In fact, it got to the point where my secretary would tell me in the waiting room whether, I would, whether, whether I would, this one was someone who I would hire. Now, what does that mean? It means that to a certain extent, I was really looking not so much. I obviously had a CV in front of me with the experience, with the qualifications or not, but I was looking at people skills. <laughs> That's what I was looking at. I was looking at personalities that could actually, you know, create the sort of the, the culture and, and maintain some of the, you know, the, the strategies that we were doing at the school. So I would go with the fact that you, you can't change a personality Whereas you can have someone who has those skills and you can add some of the some of the bits that they don't have, so to speak, in some of the technical issues in terms of some of the terms and, 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 and areas and qualifications that, that sometimes people say are the more important thing. So I think your mother had a point there, but you, we're employing people to work with other people. And, and if there's some things that, that aren't filled in, we can always get people to take courses we can train them and the last thing i want to say before i can be back again there's a i once went in uh, this doesn't happen very often but some i want to i took a break one lunchtime to go down and have uh, had a dental appointment and there was a lady there who was the assistant uh, of the, the dentist whatever. and she was looking she at, at a at, at removing and she had a chat with me where i was where i was, where I was and she anyway came along as a teaching assistant and we employed a teacher and she seven years later she had a degree um, and everything else, but she had no teaching formal qualifications, but she had all the skill set. Seven years later, she was the head teacher of our school. Wow. But I think you see someone, you see how they connect. My friend, uh, he, um, and I agreed with him, he, he met his future wife and just had a conversation. But are you a teacher? And she was actually really offended at the time. She was doing something completely different. And I met her and I was like, is she a teacher? And it was just, she just had this most caring, listening way. And my kids would go up the way she was with her. It was literally like 
she was born to look after children and the way she is and the put and she was amazing and she became a teacher it was like it was her destiny and we could see it but it is it's a certain personality that you look for and right at the beginning you said there are and it is quite i'm going to say typical if you're a secondary teacher i'm not offending it but quite typical that secondary teachers as you said they teach a subject whereas younger age groups they're often teaching the children yeah, it's interesting how, you know, some of the most insightful participants I meet in, in delegates teach early years, actually, because they think developmental, uh, they think about the kids developmentally, they're not, te- they're not thinking so much about the subjects and things like that. So they're thinking about people and how they adjust and react in, in certain age groups. There's no doubt, I will be honest with you, in, as a school teacher, as a school, as a, as a head of the secondary school, um, it was well, actually, it was nine to, it was nine to 19, our age group. A lot of the teachers that I, that I did employ um, who ended up teaching secondary uh, subjects were primary trained. And, and so I suppose there's no coincidence in the fact that those teachers were more child-centered, you know, teaching a variety of subjects versus in secondary, you are more focused on the subjects than teaching, teaching them to people. So there's one or two subjects you teach. doesn't mean you can't get great secondary school teachers who can teach SEN, but it's usually a slightly a, a bit of a a change in the pattern. I can say for myself, I was chemistry, biology, and PE, but I became more interested in, in not so much my subject, but I became interested in the people learning my subject, or in this particular case, who weren't learning my subject. That's what encouraged me to look into more, you know, uh, areas that, that are looking at why people couldn't and, and what I could do about it. And that was my journey. And I think a lot of secondary teachers who go that route can do that. But there's also one point we have to say that you know, I'm, I do a lot of training in, in, in terms of behavior and learning and, and helping in socialization. But there's something I think we just need to take on board. The most important thing, I think, for every teacher, actually, whether it's SE or not, is people skills. And I do wonder sometimes about within our teaching you know, industry, why we don't actually screen for people skills. We, we tend to sort of choose people on the ability that we can do a lesson plan to teach a subject, which is great. It's really important. But if someone can't access that, then, then surely that is the wrong way around. We should be looking at people who have people skills in order to implement a subject versus people who can implement a subject to people. I think that's, the, that's what we should be looking to do. Yeah. So you mentioned that your early years and uh, would is a, is a very obvious correlation between the uh, pressures due to grades and outcomes. Obviously, secondary, the GCSE, very stressful for the children, the pressures on for the graded league tables and all that. And the early years aren't as pressured and they can just go and think about and explore. Whereas I do think secondary do have a huge amount of pressure to succeed in their subject. And it does have an impact. Oh, it surely it absolutely does. And and you know, and we're we're not saying that secondary teachers particularly aren't aren't suited at all to teaching, you know, SEN and not interested in it, don't want to. But as you say, there's a huge number of different pressures on results, on performance, and this has been driven, you know, nationally and, and regionally. Uh within trusts. I mean, I will say that, you know, some schools are very competitive. The 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 parents also are driving this market, so to speak, and yeah. in terms of choosing schools and everything else. So there is a huge pressure there. And then there's been some little bit of like, I think, a slight change of philosophy as well in the last five or six years. You can check out other podcasts we've done on this about, <laughs> about, about I will say this, about how the Every Child Matters ship very much 
has sailed somewhat. I think about four or five years ago, it was very, very inclusion-centered. It was very every child matters, every child needs to sort of have. And it, it did shift a bit in terms of the academic race, if you like, to compete with Singapore and, and Shanghai and so on and so forth. And I think that's put added pressures on school leaders um, and, uh, and particularly in secondary where that's mostly felt in terms of the impact of performance and therefore, you know, keeping keeping our standards to the point where we are seen as, as a very competitive country in the future with, 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 other, with other nations. Yes, I actually read a book which is all about teaching and assessment and all it was basing its outcomes was on P's or assessments. And I was like, so without even looking at that, you've said that that is the, judgment, that is the best way of judging, which I would have started with working out what is the best way of judging. But I think, um, I think one of the, I think the new GCSEs, when they came in, if a child is able to get a one or a two, that's what they should be doing. They shouldn't be doing an alternative course, which may be better for them. It's much better for the school for them to get that very low level GCSE rather than a qualification which would support that child further. So I think there's lots of changes around that, which I think has probably come down to uh, streamlining and cost saving. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, <laughs> tinkering taking place there always has done education and i i you know it's interesting how you know they, they've done it again with the grading system and everything else and and for all of the reasons that you've said you know that the government's change attitudes change policies tend to follow those areas i wonder you know the you know in terms of just that point about ones and twos and threes and fours and fives you know, that's going to take a while, I think, for employers in particular to understand what's the difference between an, a three and a D or an, an A and a, you know, yeah. I think that's something. But I think if the drive is is to lessen the competitiveness of GCSEs in, you know, in, in terms of the, you know, as and, and therefore deny those students who have more difficulties in accessing those grades at that stage where they're expected to, then it's a good thing. But I think there's something else here, really, that we might want to look at in secondary schools, which is, is, a, is a much more bigger and emotive subject. It's whether or not we continually need to race to 16 to, to then finish our what is our general education in order to specialise from 16 to 18. Now, I know the British system is, is reputed around the world to, to be one of our best you know, our best exports. It's, so it does mean, though, that for students who are on point, you know, who, who are developmentally at the age of their stage, then that works. But if you are two or three years developmentally different, then, then when you get to 16, you're only really focused, you know, you're only at the 14 level. That does seem to sort of seem to hinder that, that development. And I'm just going to say something here about GCSEs and A-levels. They are, they are what we have. And, you know, for certain students, particularly doing three subjects, if, you know, if you've got, you know, maybe I was at a school the other day, which is called King's College in, uh, in London. It's a free school. And the students there just do maths, further maths and physics and computer science. Now, for those students, this is heaven because <laughs> they haven't got to do all the subjects that they might not want to do. But for most students, I think, who have SEN issues, that developmental lag delay does tend to sort of penalize them if you have to finish your all your formal general education at 16 and let's face it not many other people do it not to say they're right or wrong the you know the ib is something which we use as a much more generalized curriculum um, which allows people to develop maybe at a, a slightly different rate before they specialize at university it's done 
you know, more generally in the US, even the Irish and the Scottish don't, they have leaving certain highs, which again, which don't just limit people to have to finish at 16 and, and crush it. And I know we're a little bit off subject here a little bit. But, we never but go off piece. We, but yeah. we, never, we never go off piece. But I, what we're trying to say is what makes a great SEN teacher. And I think it's, it's also understanding, I suppose, you have to work within the system you have, not the system you don't. But I think some of those practices that we're talking about in terms of how you teach individuals will still be, you know, really important in every field. But I think it's really vital when you've got a system where you have to finish your generalized education at 16. I think um, just to finish the off piece bit, um, I think Lord Baker has written a book around about um, school, our English education system and the fact that children change school at age 11, which actually makes sense. They just literally picked it from random type thing. It's not based on anything sensible. It's just because. And he also looked at like Germany where technical skills are as seen as equal to the A-levels and they're not seen as a lesser choice. Whereas it's very much we're just pushing purely academic, which is putting all the pressures on. And it's those pressures that really impact. I was thinking the code of practice and all this stuff is legal. Your league table isn't legal, but it's what you get judged on. And somehow we're in a situation where the legal requirement is often ignored in favour of a league table score. Yeah, very much so. I mean, as I say, I, I mean, there's nothing like an educational uh, argument to really stir the, stir the passions <laughs> in everybody. They always say, you know, if you, you bring up something like that at a dinner party or whatever, then you'll get, you'll get you know, if there's eight people in the room, you've got eight different points of view on what we should and shouldn't do. I mean, you know, you're, one thing I'd say about that, just one thing you've noticed, you made that point, that jump from primary to secondary school is huge. I don't think there's a bigger jump. You move from a one teacher, one classroom setup, which can really benefit some students in that relationship they build with each two, then multiple teachers, you know, over a range of subjects, which therefore means you've got to manage the expectations of those 11 different types of teachers, some of whom will be brilliant with sort of children that have SEN, but some of them who are more you know, subject based and, and won't quite get again, 11 year old who's functioning as a, as a nine year old and their impulse control or the concentration or their reading and their spelling skills. And that is, you know, that's a huge, huge jump. You know, there's an argument to say that, you know, going back off piece again, a little bit in terms of the systems that middle schools really had a role actually for students that had, because you then had you know, maybe five teachers, a teacher teaching English and history and a teacher teaching science and maths. So therefore, you had a greater degree of relationship with maybe four or five teachers over eight or nine subjects. So, you know, there's lots of systematic tinkering you can you could make, but it does take, uh, but I'm not sure we're going to see middle schools come back. Having said that, you know, there are some things that we can learn from the middle school experience that I think could be well translated into secondary education in so much as you still could have, you know, four or five teachers, for example, who also wanted to be teaching because that's, let's face it, that's another issue here. There are some teachers who want to teach a subject to people who want to learn it. Whereas there are people who just would rather teach people who wants to learn? So as I suppose, does that make sense? So I think there is some, you know, there is some, there is some systems that you can, you can um, adapt within our current setup. So uh, you mentioned there that my child in secondary might have 11 teachers. 
I think one of the big issues at the moment, which has affected my nephew, is when you have a part-time workforce, which completely agree with has to happen. Let's get everyone working, which works for them. But that child who might have 11 teachers, it might now be 18. The science is taught by Mr. Smith on Tuesday, but someone completely different on the Thursday. And then you literally and go back to what you were saying about the interviewing, uh, personal skills and personality and things like that. For that is really important to be able to have build up a relationship, trust, to feel you can put your hand up, to feel you can say, I don't know needs a relationship and you'll get that within a couple of weeks in primary because you're with that teacher every day you get a lot of learning and the parents might pop in and just give some additional information but as soon as you're at secondary school that child turns up into your class once a week it's going to take a while to build that relationship and it'd be lovely to say to every secondary teacher go read the book on every single one of your children but that's not possible it's never going to happen it's a real challenge i think everyone who's been a parent will know as well, how the relationship changes massively with school once you go from primary to secondary. At primary, because it's also to do with size and, 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 and safety and, and the fact that they can't, you know, they can't take three buses home. And usually the school's not that far away anyway. So therefore, that relationship with the primary school, you do tend to see the teachers more often because you're picking them up. At secondary, of course, the whole dynamic changes, and, you know, and, and you do have those multiple teachers. So who would you form that that relationship with it's usually the form teacher or if, if it's SEN it might be the Senko but it's a very different relationship so the children if you like are are thrown into a very different support system than than they had previously but you know there are obviously ways of 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 helping in that transition and I think um that's something as well that, you know, we, we do need to be thinking about much more about the transition from primary to secondary. Going back to our teachers again, I, I go back to that issue, though, of, of you know, that it's, it's not that you also are, you know, to be a great teacher, you don't have to be a, a goody-goody, so to speak. You don't have to be seen as being someone who, who's just a nurturing type. You know, I, I, I work a lot in behaviour and I... Because I so I have a, a, a have a sort of like a, an approach towards it, and I call it SF3R. And when I'm doing this, I'm thinking about a particular teacher who I had some years ago, who um, who who basically embodied these qualities. And it was someone who was structured, you know, who the kids all knew where they were with. But it was someone who was flexible, that you know, that some things weren't, you know, timekeeping, not a lot of negotiation on uniform. You had to wear your uniform. You know, but not looking at you when you're speaking or doodling while, you know, you are talking in class or giving someone something to fiddle with because they needed to move. I call that flexibility. And that's what a great teacher of SEN is. It's someone who has boundaries, but someone who also allows flexibility with individuals who need to do things differently. But the rest of that formula is what you were alluding to. It's rapport. It's gaining that rapport and gaining and that person who you're working with, understanding that you understand them. So you understand that they don't necessarily need to look at you when you're speaking to them. You do allow them to fiddle. The second R, by the way, is relationships. And it's not, it is really very much between you and them, but also between them and them, understanding the, the issues of socialization amongst students. The last R, and I'll give you a chance to speak again, is <laughs> resilience. Is then you've given them the tools, if you like, to become more 
independent than dependent. And I think great teachers are, are that combination of having clear boundaries, they're consistent, but they're also flexible on things that aren't crimes against humanity. For example, not having a pen and giving someone a pen when they need one. So that to me is what makes a great teacher of SEM. So earlier you talked about sort of being proactive and not reactive. And I think that's one of those things is that's easier when you know someone. Yeah. So if you know someone, you can literally go, oh, oh, Finton's um, licking his lips, might want a drink. End of this podcast, I'll get him a drink. You kind of get to know someone the more time you spend with them. Yeah, he's now licking his lips. No, I've said that. <laughs> but so it does take time. Whereas in, in relationship with your spouse, you'll be, You'll literally, you'll know, oh, they've had this, oh, they're probably feeling that, they'll probably want that, I'll run them a bath, or I'll do this, or I'll get a takeaway tonight, or I'll do this. You'll kind of, you read each other. And that, to me, proactive is, it reduces um, stress forever, just dispels anything before it gets too big. So if you didn't know that, and something goes wrong, and then she, your, the partner explodes, then you've got to react to that. But if you can kind of see it beforehand, you're going to just get rid of that. Oh, very much so. You know, it's getting in before it accelerates. And I think what you've also said there, and I just want to make a point that it's not a bad, it's not, it, it is good to have qualifications. There's no, no question. It is good to go to courses. It is good to understand, read books and, and to, and to inform yourself about different aspects of SEM. Let's just, just say that that's, that's, that's always going to help, but it's going to be how you implement it, which is what you're alluding to. And if something isn't working in a class setting, for example, because of whatever reason, I think you, your teachers who really get it and really click, they, they do go outside the classroom. They will maybe go and, um, you know, uh, have a chat at break time or lunchtime or run a club. And the amount of, I can only say from my own experience, the, when I had issues with students in class, which I did early up, didn't, everyone didn't get me and I didn't get them. But those relationships I formed with them were often out of, out of school, you know, or sometimes on school trips or, you know, on, uh, on, on, on sports occasions, you know, or, you know, say out of school, out of, out of the classroom, I mean. But, you know, and, and those relationships I formed with students who maybe weren't as academic, if you like, really, really, really helped when we got back into the classroom. So I would always say to young teachers in particular, take as many opportunities as you can to do those out of classroom activities, because the relationships that you form with students there who might not be as traditional can really benefit when you're trying to relay, you know, the, the, the sort of the teaching and, and learning issues that, that, that you have to follow the curriculum when you're back in class. Definitely. I think one of the things I'm thinking about, you talk about one of your old teachers and the SF3R, is um, the teachers I think back and remember fondly are the teachers who kind of brought themselves into the classroom. So they didn't lay their life out on they bought something they were passionate about. So my form tutor supported Port Vale. So that was always a conversation. Well, not a huge football fan, but he always had a Port Vale mug. And he was proud of that. And we'd all laugh, but it was kind of, he was, so you kind of learned that. And other teachers, I, I know something about them, which made them just appear more human. Told me they probably had feelings. They had great days. They had bad days when Port Vale lost and things like that. And I think appearing human, is a very big yeah. bit. Part Ab of it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, many people here are nodding now and saying, you know, I, I 
I do that. Uh, it's it's worked for me, uh, and I suppose that the audience will be getting today on this podcast will we'll, we'll, we'll generally be people who who kind of you know or the converted so to speak who get this who just but it, it's it is about absolutely uh bringing yourself as well you obviously don't want to discuss your whole private life with them but aspects of things you were interested in um you know dog cat what team you support you know every now and again just throwing some of those things into the into the into the conversation or into the lesson really helps, I think, generate that relationship, which, um, you know, can really benefit you in, in, in other areas. I was thinking now just back, back to that, that formula and where the other place it comes from is that when I was a head teacher and I was looking at some reports of students coming to our school, most of the students that came to our school were, um, had been to other schools and been excluded. And I used to look at the teacher reports as well as the psychological reports. And most of the reports would say, oh, he can do it when he wants to. He annoys the other students. And they were pretty negative. There was always one, there was always one report that says, Jack does a great job in my class. And I used to say to the mother, I said, who was this teacher? Who was, the, who was this teacher that says this when all these others say that? And it was really interesting how it was a combination of things that were the fact that it was someone who mother would talk with, ran a very tight ship, you know, the student always knew where he was with her, but it was someone who, when she saw, he didn't always go out for a break with the other kids if he was upset. He's, he, you know, she kept him behind, usually in primary then, and help, helped to clean the hamster cage out. But something was always reading the mood. As you know, I feel strongly about mood. But the other thing was interested, and it, it, but it was someone who wasn't easy. She was quite tough, but, you know, she always was, you know, reading the temperature, so to speak. But here's the other thing that's interesting. They, they are, because it's in primary, it was often a woman, and it was some men sometimes, but they were often five foot two and Scottish. And I have no idea what to do with that information other than just tell you this. Okay. So the Port Vale teacher, he was Welsh. He was my form tutor from year seven to year 11. My favorite teacher from primary was Mr. Young, and he was Welsh. And the Senko at my secondary school where um, I wasn't, I, I'm, I, I'm on the spectrum somewhere and stuff, but I wasn't, but my mum knew her from working. And so she would always check up on me and I would help her out. And she just would always just keep an eye on me because she knew my mum and wanted to make sure I was all right was Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> I get to college and my favorite, my favorite, because I did wind him up. I and mean, we had an interesting relationship, but it was his first. He was Welsh. So all my favorite teachers were Welsh. Well, we're having a battle here now of the clans, and it's not really supposed to be like that. No, it's but, not. But what we're saying is, I was just saying, I used to call mine the Miss Jean Brodie approach. What we're saying is the characteristics of said individuals were, were those that they ran a tight ship, but they were flexible. And they were looking to adjust things when it wasn't working. And I think we, we probably have, we have many examples of that in England yes. and in Wales, <laughs> in Scotland, in Ireland, uh, and all over the world. But, it, you know, it, it was just something that uh, when people say to me, where does that SF3O come from? It's all oh, come from, it comes from, from a lot of that. But we go back to the whole thing about being a you know, teacher. You also do need the support of, of, of your colleagues, number one. You know, because otherwise you can be seen as, you know, uh, being someone that, you know, just goes out on a limb for them. And you need the support of your leadership in order for you to carry on doing that, which is why, you know, we've been promoting for many years that having SEN 
you know, uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Having SEN sort of on on the agenda within the senior management team would would is is easier if you do have the Senko on the SLT team in order to generate that philosophy throughout the school. Because what you want it to be is not just you being a lone ranger on this. You want to be working with your colleagues. So if you do do something which is seen as different, that you don't get them saying to you that you know, oh, you are you're you know, you're a do-gooder or, you, or they're pulling the wool over your eyes or something. You want to generate that overall philosophy that everyone is is working towards the same same means because otherwise it might mean that, you know, it could affect your, you know, your your desire to carry on being that person to bat on their behalf. Yes. So it's interesting because I was sitting there listening and in your example, you had one teacher who wrote an amazing report and all the rest wrote negative. And you're getting getting away with it. He's like, so what's what is the outcome? What is it we're trying to achieve? Is it they're supposed to conform? We did a whole podcast on about conforming or uh, not conforming, or is it you want them to learn, develop? And it's always about to me. You should, if you two people are not agreeing with each other, you should both take a step forward. You shouldn't wait for it. What we often do is, we, if you're feeling upset, you, you expect the other person to make all. Then no one ever steps, and then we just. We just stay there miles apart, not agreeing. But you kind of, if you've got a child who's doing well in you and working with you, then part of you being a great SEN teacher is trying to get the other teachers to change their mind, see this child in a different light. And you can sit there and go, look at all the stuff he does. He can do this stuff. We've just got to be that little more flexible where we can. Yeah. I mean, you know, that you don't, you, you do, you will end up being a champion for certain students. You will, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. Um, and, and you're not going to necessarily have everyone agree with, you, but you will change minds um, again. You know, I think particularly if you, again, are consistent on some things, which will be, we call the non, you know, the non-negotiables. And when I do these things, I have a band one, band two. And I know that band one is it's important that you also maintain some of the, 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 the standards, if you like, um, on, on certain behaviors and certain actions that everyone does. Cause I think otherwise, you know, there's some people will, won't always agree with your, you know, your, your, your opinions on how you're doing things, but the, th- the flexibility is what you're really after. You're really after some, some staff changing their ideas or thoughts about things that they might have seen as, 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 um, you know, as, as negative sort of like approaches, you want to change them to change the philosophy towards being more flexible in terms of meeting the needs of, of that particular child. But, you know, like I say, in all of those things, you know, to, to be a great teacher of SEN, you know, you, you do need to, I think also yourself and understanding that you, you can't do it all by yourself. You really can't back to that issue about looking after yourself. You do need to take other people with you in order to sort of like, you know, to, to, to continue your journey, because if you're the only teacher really supporting them on a day-to-day basis, then that, that child's self-esteem and self-worth, if it's being damaged by so many other people, is, 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 is going to very much dilute what you're trying to do. So you're trying to help them be stronger everywhere and improve everywhere. But if, if I can, I'm right here, it becomes, yeah, it becomes that I only perform with you and you've got to help them yeah that, that's a little bit yeah you, 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 you've alluded lovely. you've alluded something here which is it's a conversation we've heard before when people say well he's always okay with me 
you know, and there's a temptation sometimes to do that because he probably is only okay with you. But the reality of that is, is that that's not helping him or her, you know, long-term with those teachers who probably could change a little bit. You know, it's not, it's tempting and it's probably true actually, but it's, it's, it's probably best not to say that, that, that issue. Cause it's not, you know, because then I don't think that necessarily encourages people to change their approach. It, I think it just tightens their approach. So I um, did a podcast with Ang Harrod Welsh ages ago, and one of the bits of advice she gave, which was really, really, really sensible and really good, was kind of don't listen to the stories in the staff room about children. Don't sort of propagate them. Don't help them grow. And Because you'll hear the story, about, oh, God, I've got him next year. Then he'll arrive in your classroom and you're already feeling negative towards him. Might be subconsciously, might be consciously. And that will then, that may impact your actions. So you've got to kind of be really open-minded and the take the child is what you see and what you get and learn from them rather yeah. than learning from the stories about them. Yeah, I think so. I, I, this, I hope this doesn't contradict what I said just a minute before, but I think that's absolutely right, particularly with younger staff who are coming into a school, new staff, and if a member of staff is, is talking very negatively about a certain student, uh, in public, um, then other people will hear that and it will colour their opinions of that student. Even before they've met him, you know, he'll become a marked man from the, from that family that you've had. Years. So I think it is, uh, I think it would be, you know, as we're talking about in other talks, really, it's important not to be a bystander there and, and at least to have a word with that teacher, at, maybe not, don't shout him out in front of the other teacher, but to say, look, I just think that's not helping that's not helping. You might feel that way about him and that's fair. That's what you feel. But by saying that you might be influencing other members of staff and, and that's not fair, you know, and that's a, that's a little bit of bullying actually, if we really want to make that, you know, honest, but it's happening. It's, it's influencing other people in your own opinion. And, and so I think from that point of view, as much as, you know, you, you said before, he's okay with you, so to speak. I think it's, it's good for you at least to sort of try and step in there so that, that impact of that person who's been very negative is not being felt by other members of staff who haven't had a chance to make their own opinion yet. Because you might, you might see them and they, you react really strongly negative. Oh, he's doing it again. It's like, okay, doing what? How do you know? And there was, um, there was a child at my daughter's school and I, I used to be chair of governors. I used to go in and help out. So I didn't have huge knowledge of what was going on, but I knew one of the children was a challenge. but. She was absolutely always lovely with me. I could see there were times, maybe in school she was struggling, but I just went in and treated her open-minded because I couldn't know anything about her. I didn't know anything about her. And she was always all right with me. It was always, I just went in and took her as she was. I didn't go there half flinching, expecting things to go wrong. I just went in there open-minded and I never had, but then I wasn't putting her in challenging situations. So differences. Yeah, you do. I mean, this, okay, so there's two things to say there. Number one is that you do, you know, they say to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So there's no doubt that having some degree of knowledge about someone's learning style can be helpful. But I say to my staff, I think it's how you do it. So some of the students that came to our school would have multiple reports, some of them, you know, conflicting in terms of what they said about diagnosis. Some of them were conflicting in what they said about what should be done. And, and certainly some of those teacher reports I was 
alluding to were very negative. So I used to sort of try and give my staff a top line you know, set of criteria of which I think these are the sort of things to look at. These are the strengths. These might be some of the things you need to work on. And then I said, go and form your own opinion, so to speak. Don't read the file, the full file yet. Now, if there's issues that aren't, aren't working and it's not working for you, there's a whole file downstairs. There's quite a lot of paperwork in there. Then you can read through that. So that's how I did it. I gave them a top line set of criteria in order to look at and then to form their own opinion, if that, if, and then they move on from there. If that didn't work for whatever reason, then they had the information. But otherwise, if you read all this stuff, you would have formed an opinion that this person was unteachable, you know, and, and that's not really what, some, what was, that was not the case. Yeah, you find your own opinion, we meet them. So we mentioned about sort of teaching a child, not a subject. What about teaching a child, not a label? Well, I'm, you know, I'm very much in favor of that uh, approach too, as, as you know, I'm very much in, in the issue of there's no ADHD children. I would prefer to see children with traits that are related to ADHD. So I think you look at the child, you look at the personality of the child, you look at the strengths and weaknesses of the child, and then there might be some direction with some of the aspects that might fit certain labels such as you know impulse control issues concentration issues inflexibility issues if they have asc i think you you very much um should see it that way and as i said you know, some of the strategies that you would use for certain labels will be applicable but they won't necessarily all be applicable for that child at that age at that time and and that's where i that's where i that's where I, that's where I put my flag in the sand on that one. <laughs> yeah, because also uh, what works for SEM works for all. So some of these strategies and approaches will work for all children or maybe not that child, but it is about finding out your own. Again, rather than judging. There'll be, as you said, some, you get some bit of information that's useful, but what you'll also find is, as we all did, you had favorite teachers. You had some teachers who were lovely. I just didn't like them. And the previous teacher could have been one of them he didn't like or they loved, and you're going to be different. So it could always be a different just by moving to the next class in the same school. They could be different. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And you talk about favorite teachers, and, you know, this is what you find with certain individuals, you know, that people say, well, he's not a problem in my class because basically that it's not so much that this teacher is, is an SEN expert, but this teacher recognizes that this kid or child needs to move more than maybe the others and, and needs things broken down than the others. And, and I suppose the reason why he's a favorite teacher of that child is that child feels that he gets him, you know, yeah. and he doesn't necessarily need a label to do that, but he gets him, he gets his style. And I think that's what you're looking at. And I think we also have to appreciate that some of our systems, I was in a, a school recently the other day and uh, I was talking to the, 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 teaching assistants and I think I'd like to also have you explore this with me again about teaching assistants and with teachers in terms of the SE and I'm going to come back to that but the teaching assistants were saying that some um, there's a system that um, some of the students that they have um, have most difficulties with in terms of motivation are the students that in year nine are making their choices for year 10 and 11 right at the start of the year and um, some of those students who really have poor, maybe poor literacy skills and everything else, are then making those choices at the start of year nine. 
So the choices that they've made, they're usually a bit more motivated for, but the ones that they don't want to do next year, they're in a class with other students who are motivated to do those subjects because they're doing them next year. So the challenge is, is to try and keep a child who's not got any interest in doing geography at year 10 or year 11 to keep him interested in geography for the whole of year nine when he probably doesn't have the same set of skills to really compete on an even basis. So that is a challenge. My, my daughter was in uh, year nine beginning of COVID. So her decision was not at the beginning, it was part way through. And she got her choices two, two, three months before the end of term type of thing. Yeah, there was an immediate, why am I bothering? And I literally sort of sit there and go, completely agree. But then we weren't in a classroom and we could make that choice. It's like, yeah, make sure you do the work you're doing. You've got to keep doing, but the stuff you're dropping, because it was, it was COVID, but I can imagine you yeah, in the classroom, that's a real challenge. Yeah, it is. And it is. And, and, but it, and, you know, but that is the challenge, you know, and all systems are there. But, you know, going, can I go, can I also say that probably one of the reasons in that particular class that it wasn't working so well is that they didn't have a great teacher of SEN because the TA was probably holding up the fort with the students that were, you know, somewhat disgruntled about you know, doing the subject anyway. And that teacher had said to them, you take care of them. Let me take care of the motivated ones. So the teaching assistant was dealing with all of the demotivated and I'm getting going to get on with the ones who are going to do it in year 10. That's not a great teacher of SEN because a great teacher of SEN would see the teaching assistant as actually, in my view, assistant teacher. <laughs> That's one. And I've been saying this for a while. You, you're a double act. You know, and I think there are some teachers that just don't know how to work with a TA. You get, you let him do it. Let me go on the rest of the others. A great teacher of SEN is working in partnership with their assistant teacher or TA. And I, I said before, you, you're, you're, you're Anson Deck. You know, you're, you're, you're the two Ronnies. You're Simon and Garfunkel. You are working. You are the adults in the room working on behalf of not just the students that have SEN, but all the students in that group. And that teacher would also be technically maybe working more specifically with the children with SEN on some of the teaching and learning issues, but not be adverse at all to the teaching assistant or assistant teacher working with the other students and and also understanding that they might have some other aspects of experience in their life uh, training and people skills that might work better for certain students and others in that class all of the students in that class like i say before it, a great teacher of SEN is someone that, that works in partnership with the assistant teacher not threatened by you know their things they do they do well and, and working, I said before, you know, it's, it's a performance you're giving. You're Simon Garfunkel, you're both singing the songs. Maybe you as a teacher have, have written the music and we're playing your music, but it, you're both performing the songs. So I'm going to go slight segue, but similar, similar ballpark. Primary, teacher, TA, it's a double act, tie year. When you get to secondary, often the TA may follow the child. So that TA now has to work with 11, 18 adults. And some schools, they have uh, department-based TAs. Either way, it takes management. But what do you think, from your experience, would work best? And I'm putting point. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, you're putting the answer is point. Be, yeah. Whatever works. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I was, I, I was going to say, I think, you know, I suppose it's, it's I think you, you, I'm going to take a slightly different view on it in that it really depends on the specific needs of that child. You do get some children who are, who are almostly 
it's very deep. You want to limit the amount of relationships that they have in one sense in order for them to feel they've got a specific person they can rely on. And that slightly takes us away from what we said before. But there are some students, I think, who probably do need a more, uh, a more consistent member of staff, especially if they're having to work with 11 other different ones. <laughs> you know, it's just the variables will be too great if there's so. But I think in general areas, I think, you know, that what we should be doing is, is that I would like to see a day, an ideal day is that everybody is able to move around, not so much with a child, but maybe with, because I think there is, a, there is a benefit for having departmental TAs, you know, in that if they have, you know, if there is more generalized, because you won't achieve that double act thing really, unless some people do have some elements of expertise on the subject. I mean, yeah. let's, let's, let's be honest about this. So I think in an ideal world that, you know, having departmental TAs would, would work very well. So I'm not against that, but I think if you've got a child that has very specific, you know, individual needs that really it's, it's hard for someone just to pick that up and, and for that child having to said before to deal with 11, maybe 22 adults, as opposed to, you know, to an 11 adults, then I think it's better to be, you know, to, to carry on that system. So it could be a hybrid or a bit of both. I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think a hybrid is a good way of putting it. Because that way you've got a TA who knows, let's say science, knows the curriculum more, knows the lab, knows the environment, knows absolutely. the teacher, absolutely. Um, can be involved in the faculty discussions to sit there and go, what about these children? It, to me, there's a lot of benefit from that. But as you said, and my nephew would be in one of the children where one person for them would have been much better. I, I mean, you know, whenever I work in this sort of area, we, we always talk about working with t TAs and, and teachers. It's all about communication uh, and, 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 and there shouldn't be ego involved. I mean, I go to, I was at one staff meeting once where we were trying to get this across and uh, it was a big secondary school where the TAs, I think, did, did move around all the time. And it was interesting early on because I could see that the staff didn't actually know the names of their TA. They used to call them, um, is it okay here, miss, or okay here, sir? So what we did was we we did, we actually, in the training session we were doing about getting collaboration between the teachers and the TAs, we did it like a, a, a pub quiz with um, the pictures of the TAs on a sheet of paper. And then we had the staff members write down what their names were <laughs> in order, because, and, and they, they didn't know their names. No. And, and, and so that was two things, wasn't it? The value of, of how the teaching assistant was feeling about their work. Someone doesn't know your name and you're working with them on a day-to-day -day basis. How does that make you feel? And the other issue is the kids will pick this up. The kids will pick this up and they will notice that and they will feel that. So, again, it makes that whole thing really, really not very efficient. The double act is about trust. And if you can play off two adults against each other, because they don't really know each other or you trust can, each other. You can divide it, and it's, uh, it's certainly not going to be constructive in terms of what you're trying to achieve. So. So, so have we covered everything on what makes a good teacher of SEN? A great teacher of SEN, we're saying. I, I think, look, we go back to those same principles of wanting to be child-centered and help them with their learning and their socialization. I think you are a, a teacher and you're a coach. I think that's what I would say. You are, you're teaching them about subjects, but you're coaching them about aspects of 
of, of, of how to interact, how to learn, how to study, uh, and, you know, and, and those soft skills, if you like, of helping them make, make better choices are, are really important. If you really want to teach a subject only, you should probably become a lecturer at university. But um, as I said, it's a very, very, um, it's not an easy job, but it's a very fulfilling job because what you're doing is you are truly changing lives. Definitely. And I think, I think from my experience with my nephews and so on, I think it's easier to support SEN in primary. It's a smaller team. It's easier to share, less relationships, parents involved. Secondary, it starts getting really difficult and it does take uh, leadership to be invested in SEN for it to work. And with all the pressures, that's not always the easiest. Um, but as you said, it comes down to a sort of the personality, the relationship with them, the modeling behavior. But it's having those boundaries, having those uh, non-negotiables so they know where they are. And I think for a teacher themselves in secondary, I mean, agree with most of that. I think you do need to work for someone who, who has that philosophy. I can honestly say one of the best things about, if any of you are thinking about going that route into headship or what you, what, one of the benefits of that is that you get to choose the people you work with. So if you've got a leader who's got an SEN, and pastoral sort of ethos and generally speaking they will be looking to hire people colleagues like yourself who have that ethos um so that's just a, that's just something else to to bear in mind really but um yeah i i think it's more complex in secondary it's bigger you know the, the issues you say are pressures are different but um it doesn't mean that we can't all work towards um you know a, a very uh a productive out outcome for children who have you know additional needs so thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, Dale. Always will. Um, we'll be putting the links you've mentioned in the show notes. Finton's actually given me a loss, long list of them. And you'll also find Finton's contact details. Thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. If you're listening to it on an app, you can subscribe there. Or you can go to our website and find links to all the different podcast platforms. And you'll find the website at www.thesendcast.com. You'll also find us on various social media channels. So on Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And don't forget, you can always drop us an email. Let us know your thoughts, suggest topics, give us feedback. Send, send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you have enjoyed this podcast with uh, Finton, why not look into the virtual Send conferences? This is a conference like the, like the Sendcast is run by us here at B Square, but it covers all aspects of SE. And what makes the conference different is its access across the internet. We run it every year in May, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to make a difference in your school with something you can take away and do straight away. You can buy tickets for future events or past events. The videos are always available, and the cost for each conference is £60, and this covers the entire school, not per person. And as a list of the Sendcast, we're giving you a 10% discount just using the code Sendcast10. And you can find about all about the virtual Send conference by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. So thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of the Sendcast. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.